Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Mindful Recovery. This is the podcast dedicated to helping you recover from trauma and addictions, one breath at a time. Hey, thanks for being with me for episode 23 of Mindful Recovery, the podcast dedicated to helping you recover from trauma and addictions one breath at a time. Last week, we started a discussion about sexual assault. As a trauma therapist, this political season has really triggered a lot of people. I've seen an increasing number of people come in with a generalized anxiety that is being triggered by this discussion of sexual assault and by them seeing a society that does not take it as seriously. A few weeks ago, I did an interview with a a friend of mine who's been a good friend for a while because we chat back and forth about individual cases, situations we've run into as therapists, and she is in her own right a rock star uh, trauma therapist in the Annapolis, Maryland area. Laura has a podcast of her own called Therapy Chat, where she discusses these kinds of issues with other therapists a lot. And I thought, wow, you know, we're both so passionate about this that I wanted to have her on here, and I wanted to use that interview as part two in this series about sexual assault in our society. And we are both so passionate about it that you're going to hear us kind of trip over each other a little bit in this conversation. And I could have edited that out, but I really wanted that to come across, and so I left it in. And so sit back and just relax and enjoy this conversation with Laura Reagan, and hopefully it will inform your view on sexual assault and how serious that is right now and how much work we still have to do. Enjoy this interview with Laura Reagan. Laura, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Robert. So you and I both do a lot of trauma therapy work, and I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your podcast, which is called Therapy Chat, and is directed, well, you tell me where you direct that podcast, and then we'll move on from there. Okay, sure. So um, my podcast, Therapy Chat, is basically me talking or talking with other people about just the practice of therapy, mindfulness, trauma, attachment, emotions, parenting. Um, I like talking with other therapists about how they do their work. And I like talking about issues that are relevant to my clients. Um, So, uh, you know, all kinds of things. I think it's really interesting, but it's everything I'm interested in. So, of course, I think that. <laughs> well, and see, that's that's really it, is that I've listened to several of your podcasts, and the thing that I love about them is that I find them applicable for both um, professionals and for clients. Um, I find a lot of information in there that my patients can use, but it, really, you are like a trauma therapist's therapist in a lot of ways. Um, tell me, you because every time we talk, you go inevitably to the "Are you taking care of yourself?" angle, which I think is awesome, <laughs> you know. And so I think that's just like a natural outcropping for you. And tell me about the group that you've started to 
you know, kind of make sure therapists are holding that self-care space for themselves. Because a lot of the work that we do often is is helping people hold some very difficult places. And I think you've started a really interesting group for other therapists for consultation, that kind of stuff, that I'm pretty sure, based on my conversations with you, includes a strong self-care component. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. You know, I having worked with survivors of trauma since 2002, and um, I've been a clinician since 2010, of course, I've heard so many stories, and it's become clear to me, came clear pretty early on that this work has an effect on us. And I learned about the effects of secondary traumatic stress and vicarious trauma. And I just, I don't think that we professionals, helping professionals in general and therapists also in particular, um, we don't always recognize the impact of our work on us and it can really make some profound changes. And sometimes by the time you notice, you're already pretty far down the road towards burnout and then it feels so overwhelming. So I created a an online community where therapists can have monthly online consultation using a secure platform. But this consultation isn't really to talk about client cases as we typically would in what we think of with clinical consultation. It's really more to talk about what it's like to do this work and how it affects us and how we can prevent long-term damage from vicarious trauma and address the effects that we've already experienced. Because, you know, if you sit in an office and you see 20 clients a day and you hear 20 horrifying stories a week, hour after hour, and you care, you're an empathic person. So you're deeply caring and focused on what you're hearing. It affects you. So, you know, we don't want to lose our empathy. And so to how do you shut off the effects on yourself while still being open to the other person? It's not, you know, it's not impossible to prevent some effect, but, you know, so much of it kind of seeps in. And especially um, one of the things that you've talked about lately is the broken spaces. And I love the um, like the Ernest Hemingway quote, we're strong at the broken places that, you know, wherever those spots are that are a little more tender for us as therapists, that's where the vicarious trauma really seeps in and creeps in and just sneaks up on us. And um, so often we don't even notice the effects until it's gotten pretty significant. So this community is right now it's in a um, kind of like a pilot phase just for five months that includes a Facebook group and the online monthly consultation. But um, I'm thinking that I'm going to have a second cohort start in early 2017. That's, that's awesome. I look, I look forward to being actually one of those future members of your cohorts. Um, I'd love to have you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to jump into, you know, um, kind of how we got here and decided to do this interview. And that was that both of us are pretty active in, and you talk about vicarious trauma. And I think sometimes patients sit in the room with us 
and they think we're just kind of doing our job and and they don't understand until like in session, you know, occasionally I tear up and cry with the patient. And I think that's not an uncommon experience because when you're emotionally attuned with someone, you're feeling with them, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not just listening separate from their story. And I think, um, the other part that happens is we become very passionate about trying to advocate for our patients. And I recently have been, you know, and part of this goes, like you said, to my own broken spaces and my own history of people that have been close to me who have been sexually abused or raped or whatever. And so that becomes an issue that I'm very like adamant about doing advocacy work about. And you know, recently, several blog posts in the Huffington Post about things that have bothered me and how rape isn't taken seriously in society and the advocacy work that I think is still necessary. I mean, just this morning, for instance, um, one of our presidential candidates is defending himself against a former Miss America that he berated for being fat by claiming that she's got a sex tape out there, which obviously, you know, the implication is that makes her less than, mm. right? Um, whether or not it's true. And completely ignoring the fact that people get involved in these kind of things out of that broken place, you know? Um, and it's just easier to dehumanize, especially when it's women, because there's so little, there's such a long history of, of no power there, such a long history of, of seeing women and children as property, Um Tell me about your own experience in the office, because I know this is a big area of advocacy for you, too. Yeah, I I love that we share this passion. And for me, I started out as an advocate. I was a volunteer in a sexual assault crisis center. That's what I started doing in 2002. And um, I've worked in, in the field of supporting sexual assault survivors since that time. It's not my only practice, but it's a big focus of my work because I've seen the effects of sexual assault from the moment that someone shows up at the hospital after being sexually assaulted. I've talked to people on a hotline just after it happened, so I've seen the crisis and the the long-term effects all the way through to people who've been sexually abused in childhood and maybe have never told anyone and they're 60 years old and it's affected them their whole lives. And, you know, so understanding how important this issue is and seeing how so much we turn a blind eye in our culture to this problem, you know, the problem of sexual violence and the problem of violence in general and violence against women, which encompasses, you know, domestic violence and really it's, we live in a violent culture, but child abuse, sexual assault, domestic violence, those issues are all really under a larger umbrella of oppression and, you know, treating people as property and the idea that some people are less worthy than others, which is just a complete and total lie. Um, what you just talked about with the story, I had not heard this news today, and I do try to kind of limit how much news I take in. I want to be aware of current events and at the same time for my own, you know, support and self-care. I 
I try not to read every article about sexual violence that comes across because as much as I'm glad that there's more awareness, you know, it's so painful to see just the the negative, harmful, you know, way that we talk about survivors of sexual assault. So, but, you know, and I don't know if it's okay to say this on your podcast, so feel free to cut this out if you need to, but... Um, it is. <laughs> okay, because what you're talking about was saying, oh, this woman is accusing me of mistreating her while well, she has a sex tape. That's slut-shaming, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm not you know, calling I mean, it's her calling... a slut, but, you know... No, it's calling her a whore to try and gain control over her story. You know, it is an act of verbal violence, in my opinion. Absolutely. It's misogyny in action. It's diminishing someone saying, she's a woman who has sex, so don't listen to her. You know, it's the whole, like, Madonna whore um, concept that women are either, you know, beatific, motherly, nurturing people who don't have sex, which is stupid because how could you be a mother if you didn't have sex? (laughs) Exactly. Although I really don't want to go there in my head. Thank you. It's like, (laughs) but, and you know, that's part of it is we don't want to think about our mothers that way. So we don't want to think about women that way, unless as men, we need them that way. You know what I mean? It's just a very controlling, dominant kind of thing that I see over and over. And what really bothers me is when we do this to women, for instance, the Stanford rape case, the young woman who was raped, well, she was drunk you know, so obviously she was just asking for it because she was a whore. And it's just this kind of, again, this, this history of men not taking responsibility for actions out of their own fear and vulnerability or whatever it is, not taking responsibility. So how about, you know, how about instead of worrying about whether a woman has had too much to drink, we teach men that it's not okay to take what you want. You know, I mean, that's... Yeah, I... For me, really, but- Robert, the thing is, it's not women having too much to drink and so she wants it. It's even the idea right. that it's this misconception that if a woman, men should be interested in sex, they're supposed to be focused on sex, but women aren't supposed to be sexual. And again, that's like, that's so stupid and ridiculous. It's not true. It's we're humans. We're made to reproduce just like animals. You know, female animals don't pretend that they don't want to have sex. It's sex is normal and healthy. It's not bad, taboo, you know, scary thing. It's just a normal and healthy thing. So, you know, when we have this idea that you have to get a woman drunk so she'll want to have sex. And that's kind of what, that's the antiquated thinking of people who think, you know, well, the only way someone will have sex with me is if she's drunk. Well, then you are raping her. So now not everyone who's drinking alcohol is unable to consent, but when someone is intoxicated and they can't consent, or if they're unconscious or asleep, that's not when you take the opportunity to have sex. That isn't sex. That's rape. And so, you know, I think I think it's important to address that idea that um, just because a woman is sexual. So let's say if it is even true about the beauty pageant contestant having a sex tape, 
So what? If she made a sex tape with consent with her partner, that's her business. You know, it's um, if someone has released a sex tape of her without her consent, that's an act of sexual violence. That's what they call revenge porn. You know, you you talked about we live in a violent culture. I think it's more than that even in that I think we, we live in a culture that increasingly lacks the ability to be empathic. Oh, I agree. So I agree. I, I sit with addicts all the time and I see people in their addictions and they're, they're not using because it's fun. They're using because they need to numb out because these horrible things like rape have happened to them. You know, and the same thing with women often who are involved in the porn industry. They're involved there because of the broken places, you know, that that they're just trying to numb out. And they end up addicts, and then they end up doing these other horrible things to support the addiction because, frankly, the idea of living with these broken spaces is just too much. And I think we don't see that. We skip very, very quickly to judgment, you know. Oh, well, she must be a whore. Instead of... This is a child who didn't start out this way. How did we go from this beautiful, perfect child when she was born to this broken human being? You know, how did we get there? And even in the in the case of the rapist, how do we get from a child who was born with everything they need to someone who would violate in such a way without conscience? I, I, you know, I I'm just, glad you said that because I think about empathy. It's very true that... When we lose empathy for ourselves or when we never experience someone having empathy for us, we lose our capacity to have empathy for other people. And that's where violence begins because you you wouldn't hurt someone else if you were thinking about how they would feel if you hurt them. And I'm never going to believe that any child is born without empathy for other people. You know, some people have this idea that, you know, serial killers are just like born evil. That's not true. Violent people are made, you know, they say hurt people hurt people. And that's what it is. It's made by knowing having empathy for you and how extreme that gets to where you don't develop your own sense of empathy. Because I think we start with it. And if you look at babies, you know, you see a one-year-old and um, their sibling or parent is showing being upset in some way or an animal is hurt and they are trying to comfort and they're, you know, trying to soothe, even though they're not even maybe talking yet, they understand. So we can, we can take that out of people by mistreating them, harming them, hurting them, hitting and you know, telling them that their feelings aren't valid and telling them not to feel what they feel, telling little boys, boys don't cry. Um, right. You know, that's that's how it starts. And people might think that or sounds even, extreme, but that is how it starts developmentally. Even even early, early on when we just ignore their needs, we're telling oh, yeah. we're, we're telling them implicitly your needs are not important. You need to just shut down that. That's how reactive attachment develops, you know, Um just yeah. the whole, whole being ignored long enough that I stop trying to get my needs met, you know. Um, I, I just, I used to joke about, you know, um, because I think we default to judgment quickly because it feels good sometimes. 
It feels mm-hmm. good. It feels protective to see myself as superior to someone else. It takes a lot more courage to admit that, yeah, I- I'm broken too. And so I get where you're coming from, you know? Um, well, especially if you feel broken inside, you're quick to, I actually talked about this on my podcast that came out today, but <laughs> you're quick to distance yourself from someone else's pain. And so when someone says, I was raped. The first thing that the person they're telling is going to come up with is, oh, my God, that's terrible. No, that can't be true. Well, maybe they were somewhere they shouldn't have been. Maybe they were doing something they shouldn't have done. And, you know, they want to explain how. So they say, well, you know, were you drinking? It's because of the alcohol. It's because of what you were wearing. You shouldn't have been out late. You shouldn't have been where you were. You shouldn't have been at a party. Right. And and that's That's to soothe their own fear. Distance myself from the pain. Tell myself it can't actually happen to me because I would never do what this person did. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, yeah, I tell my, I, I like the point of, you know, not seeing the brokenness in other people at times. It, I, I think I hopefully have made an impact on my children in that when they were little, they would say, well, that, that they're just a bad kid. We don't want to be around them. They're a bad kid. And I would say to them, you know, there are no bad kids. Children are exactly who they're made to be. You know? Well, you're right. Because we want to think that there are good guys and bad guys. There's good and evil. And the fact is, good people can do bad things. And there are no bad people. There are only bad behaviors. No one's beyond, like, redemption, you know? I mean, the the whole thing about addiction that I see so often and and you know this work. I I talk with people who have a history of substance abuse and they so often are extremely ashamed of that past. So even if they're far past, you know, when they stopped using, they're they're ashamed of and shunning that part of themselves that did those things back then because it was so harmful to the people and they, they loved and their relationships and, you know, maybe cost them jobs and other things. But the point, the, the bottom line is if you don't have empathy for that part of yourself, that you who did that for your own reasons, then you're, you're likely to shun other people who have addiction. You know, you're likely to avoid connection with other people who you think aren't perfect, but no one is. So we're all, we're all just on this journey through life, trying to figure it out, trying to do the best we can. And you hope by the time you get to the end that you've done things the right way as much as you could. And if not made up for it, which is part of doing things the right way. It's not just that you never screw up. It's, you know, where do you go from there? Yeah, that's, you know, the whole, I did, episodes on forgiveness and that's that self-forgiveness is really key in our own healing um back to the you know victims of sexual assault and rape i just on a cultural society i mean we've talked about on an individual level why people might do that well you were raped because you were doing this or because you're doing that but it it feels like there's this whole culture out there now though that wants to do that like in the case of Paterno, who, you know, 
was recently celebrated at Penn State as this great heroic coach, but for decades covered for a man who was sexually abusing young men. You know, children. I, yeah. yeah, and I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I, I don't. I mean, we we know that that this man was in the shower with a young boy and sexually abused them, and we know that it was reported to Paterno and that he basically blew it off and said, I got a football program to run. That, that people knew about this, whispered about it in the back rooms, but that program and the millions that it generated for Penn State was more important than the lives of those children. And that, that makes my head a little bit want to explode, to be honest. Oh, it's absolutely disgusting and horrifying. But if you think about it, the same way that Paterno was able to turn a blind eye to what was in front of him is what Penn State is doing by saying we're going to honor Paterno in spite of the fact that they are in right now litigation. There are lawsuits pending against them right now by the victims of Sandusky. So, you know, for them to be able to say, on one hand, we care about these victims and, you know, we're doing better. And on another hand saying, well, let's celebrate Joe Paterno's 50th year anniversary or whatever. And it, you know, I saw someone talking about this. Um, she was like, why now? Like, why? It wasn't even a, a really significant thing to celebrate. Why are you doing this right now? It's like so tone deaf like how could you not realize how harmful that would be to the victims and but that's the thing is that we don't want to see this we don't want to see these ugly things we can't stand to think about it so it's easier to just kind of pretend it's not happening you see that in families all the time and I know you must know this Robert I swear and I know there's a connection with addiction too that people who were sexually abused in childhood and they did tell and their parents didn't believe them. And they may have told their, their mom and then they told their teacher and they told their school counselor and they, you know, no one believed them. They told their friends and then they're acting out more and more. And then when they come forward again, people are like, Oh yeah, you're going to believe them. I mean, look, they use drugs. They, you know, were set in fires, they smoke, you know? And so it's like that's further evidence that this did happen to this right. person because my, why did they start acting out? I don't ever look at those behaviors and think, why are they doing that? I look at those behaviors in the past and I think, why wouldn't you do that? You know, right. if every other avenue You're of communication. You're trying to tell everyone, hey, help me. Exactly. Help. If I need help. Every other avenue of communication has been shut down and I have to set, on a, 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 set a house on fire to get attention. That's what I'm going to do, you know? Um, I mean, it's it's... It, it is amazing to me, but I have to say it's it's you're right at the root of almost every addiction that I deal with is this kind of trauma. And when people aren't listened to and they're not heard, that makes it even worse um, because there's, there's nothing left to do. I'm not going to be heard. Nobody's going to help me carry the pain. The only thing left is to numb it out. You know, that's all that's left is to numb it out. Numb it out or hurt myself so that I have another kind of pain to think about, which is the self-harming behaviors, or suicide. And this is this is what we see from deep yeah. trauma, you know. These are the reactions we see. And people, you know, all the time are going there. And I don't ask, 
why did they do this? I ask, why wouldn't they do this in this situation? What is the alternative that we've provided them? You know, and, and I think it is about people's fear and their fear of vulnerability and not willing, being willing to have the courage to hold that space. You know, I tell my patients frequently, I, I don't see someone who's broken here. I see someone with broken places that's amazingly strong. You know, it's just, you've used the only coping tool you've had up until now, you know, <laughs> to deal with this amazing stuff that most people could not hold. Right. And that's how you got through it. So instead of judging yourself for what you did to get through it, you know, how can you give yourself compassion and realize that you were suffering so much? Well, and you know, because we talk about brain science every now and then, and and I get the feeling that you are uh, a fellow geek when it comes to that. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, because Really, the root of every addiction is, well, what keeps us addicts is this isolation, a lack of healthy social connection. But the, the underlying cause of that lack of healthy connection is exactly what you were talking about. The fact that I've tried to communicate what happened to me, I've looked for emotional support and healthy connection, and I've been shut down at every avenue. So why bother anymore? You know? Yeah. When connection becomes painful... I retreat, and I don't want to try that anymore. Vulnerability becomes too expensive. I'm going to let you go and wrap it up. I want one more time for for you to tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, especially if they're in the Annapolis area and they need you know resource hookup or a good therapist. Um, make sure they have your email and all of the links that you send me and stuff. I'll be putting beneath the artwork on this episode as usual. Okay, great. I think the easiest way, just for spelling purposes, is for me to give you the podcast website, and you can get to all my stuff through there, including my therapy services. It's therapychatpodcast.com. Great. Therapychatpodcast.com. All right. Well, Laura, thanks for being with me today. I really enjoyed this topic. I think we're going to have to continue it in a later episode um, because it's just there's so much there, you know, I think. Just the conversation of how the trauma leads to of sexual abuse leads to this everything leads to everything leads to people not being able to hold that space and slut shaming. It leads to people, you know, having to get drunk when they're at parties just to be around people, and then you know, it just all of it seems very related to me and all about the ways that we're broken as a society. So maybe the next time we can talk about how we fix all that. Oh, great. I'd love to come back. Thank you, Robert. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for being with us, Laura Reagan, uh, at therapychatpodcast.com. So that was my interview with Laura. You can tell that we're both very excited, passionate about this topic. I'm really glad that you could be with me today. I'm going to make Laura's connection information available under the artwork for this podcast on the website at www.liferecoveryconsulting.com. You can go to the podcast or you can go to mindfulrecoverypodcast.com, either one. So if you have questions about any of these topics, if you need referrals for a good therapist, if you're in the Kansas City area, reach out to me and I can help you get hooked up. And on next week's episode, I'm going to be doing a a podcast on getting through the holidays. Now that we're getting through Halloween, 
um, and heading into Thanksgiving and Christmas, that can be a really rough time for people with addictions. And I see a real spike in relapse during those times. So we're going to talk about how to lower our expectations and how that can help us get through the holidays and maintaining that kind of mindful space and maybe doubling down on some exercises during that 40 to 60 day period and just really doing what we can to get through and protect ourselves and maintain our abstinence through those rather rough weeks. Thanks for coming again, folks. And so with the sound of the music, you know we've come to the end of another week's episode of Mindful Recovery. I want to thank you for being here with me. And remember, Mindful Recovery is the podcast dedicated to helping you recover from your trauma and addictions, one breath at a time.